Matthew chapter 20. We'll look at chapter 20 and 21 today as we are celebrating what is traditionally called Palm Sunday. Uh, so if you're like me and you didn't really grow up in church, you may not know what that means, but Palm Sunday is the week before Easter, right? Um, and what that means is that in history, Jesus presented himself to Jerusalem as the king on Palm Sunday and came into the city. So that's the story we're about to read. And then a week later, he's crucified and rises from the dead. And so this is often called Holy Week. This is a week when he has Passover with his disciples, right? Institutes the Lord's Supper. This is a week where he marches into the city and really for the first time very clearly portrays himself as the king uh, that everybody had been waiting for. But then there's a twist on that because he's not exactly the king they thought he would be because he dies for our sins and rises from the dead. And so this is historically the week in which that happened. So Palm Sunday, we call it Palm Sunday because as he was coming in, they would lay palms and branches on the ground, almost like rolling out the red carpet for the king so he didn't have to, you know, clump through the mud and the muck, okay? So that's why we call it Palm Sunday. A lot of times kids wave around palm branches on this Sunday of the year in traditional churches. We're calling the sermon this morning, See Jesus, because in Palm Sunday, Jesus is presenting himself to us to be seen. The question is, will we see him? Will we see him? Humans have an incredible capacity to look the other way. We have an incredible capacity to not look at what we don't want to see. Romans 1 says, we deny that the creator exists. We know he's there. He's revealed himself through creation. And we often look the other way and we worship our stuff instead of the God who gave it to us. So the challenge for us is that we would actually see the king as he presents himself. So let's read chapter 20. And we're going to read verses 29 through 34 where we'll start. It's kind of like the first little episode right before he comes into the city, and then we'll read the other parts as we move along. So chapter 20, verse 29, and as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him, talking about Jesus. Verse 30, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Son of David means he's in the line of the famous king, David. So they're saying, you're the coming king. You're in the right family line. Verse 31, the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in compassion, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. So here we have a passage challenging us to see Jesus, and it starts with a couple of blind men that see Jesus in a way that nobody else does. That's our challenge, that we would have spiritual eyes to see him. This is not about our physical sight. This is about our ability, uh, our heart, our faith, our ability to see Jesus as he presents himself to us. So let me pray for us, and we'll ask that God would teach us today. God, we pray that you would be with us here, and God, we confess that we are a stubborn people, that we often want to see things as we desire to see them. And we pray that you would soften us and allow us uh, to be open-minded, allow us to open our hearts, uh, that your spirit would meet us here, that through your word, our hearts would be awakened to who you really are. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I grew up the youngest of three kids. Um, So we were all four years apart. So I had a sister four years older than me, And then I had a brother eight years older than me. 
And what that looks like uh, in a family dynamic, which a lot of you have probably seen this or experienced this, is I often then was around when we were watching scary adult stuff that I shouldn't have been watching, right? It's kind of what happens to the baby. And so there were often these times when I would watch something that was really way too scary for me as the young one, and then I'd be up crying, having nightmares the next day, right? And so my brother and sister and even my mom and dad then began training me to avert my eyes. Have you all ever done this in your family? Scary part is coming, look the other way, right? So they taught me to, you know, cover my face or look the other way if I was afraid that I would be scared. And the nice thing is with most movies and TV shows is they give you a warning with the music, right? Have you ever noticed that? There's like, there's this weird music that starts and you know your kids can just go, oh, this is it, here comes scary music, and you can look the other way. I think this is an example of how, as people, we can very easily train ourselves to not look at what we don't want to look at. We can train ourselves to not see what we don't want to see. And just so you know, I can, I can handle some scary stuff in movies now. I just wanted you to know I got over that a little bit. But I think the big challenge is, is for us spiritually. There, there are things spiritually that scare us that we don't want to deal with, that we don't want to get close to. And I want to first of all commend you just for being in a church um, because that takes a lot of guts just to open yourself up to even hearing from the Word of God because the Word of God is challenging. It, it, it cuts to our hearts and the goal is that we would actually see Jesus as he portrays himself to us. Who is the real Jesus? We don't want to just make up a Jesus of our own. We often make saviors in our own image. We often make the savior we want. And so Jesus was always fighting against the Jewish expectations of the first century. They expected a certain kind of Messiah. He also was fighting against the pagan expectations of that time. They were looking for a certain kind of leader. And we today, in 21st century America, we have a certain kind of self-help, health and wealth idea of what God should be like. And Jesus says, no, look at me as I am. Look at the me that is here. And so that's a challenge for us. And the first thing that we see as the stories unfold is that we can see Jesus because of our need. And we resist this, right? Because none of us likes to be weak. Maybe some of you do, but I'm not going to take a vote on that. Most of us don't. We we don't want to be weak. We don't want to be seen as losers. We don't want to be seen as beggars. We don't want to be seen as broken. And so we often try not to look at the brokenness in our own life. We try to avert our eyes from the pain, from the brokenness, from the weakness in our own life. And we come up with excuses for it, or we just deny it, or we just kind of try to distract ourselves and look the other way. And so the first thing we see with the, with the blind men is that Jesus reveals himself to us in our need. And as I said already, there's irony in the reality that there are all these spiritual leaders around in the Gospel of Matthew. If you go read the book, there's all these great leaders, and they can't see Jesus for who he really is. But these blind men see him. They get it. They get that he's the coming king. They call him son of David. They know that he's merciful. They cry out to him as their only hope. But the Jewish leaders can't see it. They, they resist him. They look the other way. And so there's this irony in the reality that broken people and blind people can see Jesus for who he really is. But as Jesus says uh, earlier, for the rich, it's, it's impossible. For the rich, it's impossible. And the disciples say, well, then how can anyone be saved? And Jesus says, well, what's impossible with man is possible with God. So God can still break through that in us. If we are strong, if we are self-assured, God can still break down those barriers so that we can see himself, see him. So look again at the story. He's, he's coming in through Jer- uh, Jericho. 
It says in verse 29, as Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. And we have kind of some detailed differences between Matthew and Mark. And I just want to encourage you, this is an aside that we've seen throughout the book of Nehemiah as we have kind of geographical questions and, and problems with different texts. I just want to remind you that the Bible is happy to stand up to your scrutiny. And I would invite you to study it, right? If you see what seems like a contradiction between Matthew and Mark, don't be lazy and don't just go, well, there you go, don't trust it. But actually study and look into it. Um, there's been a lot of archaeological work that's been done around Israel and around first century uh, Judea. And we understand now that there's two Jerichos. And so there's kind of a different placement of Jericho in one story than there is in the other. There's also little differences like one blind man in one story and two blind men in the other. And there's a lot of great explanations for these kinds of things if you actually take the time to study it, right? If, if you actually try. If you don't want to try, then you just fall into the category of Romans 1 that says all humans basically don't want God in their life. So you're just kind of playing that same song over again. I challenge you to try. I challenge you to actually look into these seeming contradictions and understand that there are reasonable explanations for them. So we see him leaving Jericho, which again, we believe to be a different Jericho from the other Jericho and some of these other stories. And it says in verse 30, two blind men were sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. So again, they're declaring that he is this son of David, which means he's the king they've been waiting for, right? King David was kind of the great king, David and Solomon, the great kings in Israel's history that foreshadowed the coming king that would actually do things right. And so now they're saying, Jesus, you're that son we've been looking for. You are that great king, so have mercy on us. And in verse 31, it says, the crowds rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. I just, as an aside, would say, there's often going to be times when you're calling out to Jesus and there will be people around you rebuking you, saying, shut up, don't cry out to him. He's too busy for you. Jesus doesn't have time for you. And I would say, that's not the Jesus that reveals himself in the Gospels. The Jesus that reveals himself in the gospel says, I do have time for you. I will listen. See, look at how he uh, reveals himself here in verse 32. It says, Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want for me to do for you? And in verse 33, Lord, they answered, we want our sight. In verse 34, Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. Some translations, it says he had pity on them. Some say mercy, some say compassion. This word compassion is a Greek word, splanknizomai, that when we were in the Gospels, we saw a lot because it's a very common word to talk about um, the posture of Jesus towards hurting people. This word compassion is a very simple word, which we understand at some level, but in Greek, it's a cool idiom. It's one of these kind of bodily words. The closest literal translation would be gut-wrenching because it literally means his intestines were moving, okay, which could be taken as a weird kind of wrong way too, but what that means, again, in our idiom would be it's gut-wrenching, right? Like, have you ever been broken by something so much that you just felt it in the pit of your stomach? It says that's how Jesus feels about you. He, he, he feels it. He's, he's moved towards you in compassion. He's moved towards you in compassion. And so when we feel broken, that's a great opportunity for us to see Jesus for who he really is. In our brokenness, in our neediness, that is an opportunity to see Jesus. Not to just keep fighting and keep denying your neediness and keep denying your brokenness, but it's an opportunity to cry out in faith. 
even though there will be a crowd around you, just like here, who will rebuke you and say, shut up, Jesus doesn't have time for you. Or say things like, you need to clean yourself up before Jesus will give his time to you, right? But that's, that's the news of religion, but that's not good news. Religion says, clean yourself up, and then Jesus will talk to you. Jesus says, I'm right here. He's moved towards you in compassion. Even though he knows how broken you are, he knows how ashamed we are of our sin, he knows all the things we've done wrong, he knows how messed up we are, he's moved towards us in compassion. That's why he came. So one of my favorite images from the book The Cure by John Lynch is because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, it's no longer us here with our sin between us and Jesus. And we have to work our way through our sin to get to Jesus. Because of what Jesus did to us by coming to us through the cross, it's now Jesus with his arm around us saying, let's, let's work on this sin together. Let's work on this sin together. So he comes to us in our compassion and then helps us to work on the sin issues in our life. I have a picture here of a beggar in India, and I have a lot of good friends that have traveled to India many times, and I don't know what all of India is like, but these friends have been to many of the big cities, and from what they report, there are a large number of beggars in India, especially in Delhi, and it's a hard thing. It's challenging to people's faith to be in a place like this. Maybe you've been to a big city where there's just hurt, where there's just pain, there's just brokenness everywhere you look. And in those situations, we're, we're tempted to avert our eyes, right? We just, sometimes we, we just can't handle that much neediness because it is gut-wrenching, because it does hurt. And again, we don't want to face that in our own life, right? We want to do things to distract ourselves, to numb ourselves, uh, to retreat into fantasy worlds, to deny how needy we actually are. But again, the scripture says, this is Jesus. This is the Jesus who really is. He's not waiting for you to clean yourself up. He's coming to you in your need. And you can see him because of your need. So my challenge to us is that we would actually admit and confess that neediness before God and call out to Jesus to help us. Are you broken? Are you needy? Are you willing to admit it? 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says there's really two kinds of people. There's those that lie and say they don't have sin. And then there's those that confess their sin. And Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A challenge to us all is to move out of that first category into the second category. To stop lying about sin and say, yeah, I'm I'm messed up. I'm needy. I'm broken. I can't do this on my own. I'm not the person I want to be. Jesus, help me. Help me. I'd love to talk to you more about that if, if you're interested in taking that step of just crying out to Jesus for help. I'd love to talk to you more after the service about what that means. The next thing that we see as we move through this story is we see Jesus going out of his way. So we're getting now to the story in uh, Matthew 21 where he actually is coming into the city. He's actually presenting himself now to the city. And what we see is this is not accidental. This is Jesus being very purposeful to now portray himself in a particular way to the city of Jerusalem. In the book of Nehemiah, we've been studying Jerusalem as the place where God wants to broadcast his name and his fame to the world. And as we study Nehemiah and study the Old Testament, we see these principles of God as absolutely holy and righteous and that we are sinners and we need these sacrifices to come into God's presence. We see that in the temple. We see that in the Old Testament worship. These are all ideas that point forward to the need for Jesus to make all of that work. And now Jesus is finally coming in and saying, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here to make all of this work. Look at chapter 21, verse 1. 
It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he'll send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. We'll read the rest of it in in a second here, but what I want you to key on is it says, Jesus did this so that they could fulfill what the prophet had said, and then he's going to go on in a minute and quote Zechariah 9.9. So there are prophecies about the coming king. There's a prophecy about the king that would come into Jerusalem and make everything the way it's supposed to be. And Jesus is taking steps to go out of his way to say, I'm that king. He says, I need to ride in on a donkey. Do you all know how Jesus usually um, traveled? Anybody? Scooter, motorcycle, car, rickshaw. Yeah, walking. There we go. We had a good, the universal symbol of walking there. Yes, he walked. He walked everywhere. Now, I don't want to say he never, ever rode on a donkey other than this point. The point is that throughout the Gospels, he walks everywhere, and here he rides in on an animal. There's definitely a purposeful display of Jesus going out of his way here. He's saying, look at me, I'm doing something different. I haven't done this before, but I'm doing it now. It's Passover week. It's the time in history when they celebrate this perfect lamb that was sacrificed for them in Exodus so that they could be freed from slavery and have life. And that week, he comes in and he displays himself in a different way than any other time he's interacted with the people of Jerusalem. I don't know if you've ever done this before where you're... um, following someone somewhere. You don't know where you're going. Has this ever happened? You're going somewhere and you're like, okay, I'll just follow your car, right? It's happened more before uh, satellite directions, right? Because now we can just type in the address. But still, sometimes we're, we're foolish enough to not get the address and just say, I'll just follow you, right? And then it's dark and you miss the car, right? Or maybe the car looks like five other cars and you're like, I don't know if it was the Ford or the, or the other car or what, you know, what's happening. Uh, sometimes you get lost, and so what I want you to see here is Jesus is very clear. He was making sure that we could see him. He's going out of his way. I found a picture here online of a taxi with follow me on the back of it. Um, when I'm following someone and I don't know where I'm going, I wish they had a big sign, right, or big red flags or something because it's easy to miss it, right? And what I want you to understand about Jesus is he understands how confused we are. He, he gets it that life is hard. He gets it that life is complicated. And he's saying here, follow me. This is it. He's waving a big sign. He's saying, this is it. Follow me. I'm the king. And he's coming into town in this particular way, going out of his way to show that he's riding in like a king. He's not walking in like everybody else. Even though his entire life, he walked everywhere. His entire life, he lived like an ordinary person. Here, he's coming in. There's crowds, hundreds of thousands of people walking into Jerusalem for the festival. And he's standing out. He's doing it differently. So my question for us is, do we go out of our way for others the way Jesus went out of his way for us? Do we do that? In Philippians 1, it says that he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, right? And what that means is that not like he couldn't understand it, grasp it. It means he didn't consider equality with God something to be clung to in a greedy way that he would never let go of. But he He let go of that and became a human. He took on flesh and became one of us and was obedient even to the point of death. He he became a servant. So Philippians 1 gives us this picture of Jesus went out of his way for us. 
a trendy term that a lot of people like to use is missional. What missional means is that you live as if you have a mission. You live as if God has sent you. Again and again in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, the Father has sent me. As he sent me, so I'm sending you. And that's the challenge. Do we see ourselves as sent? Do we go out of our way knowing that Jesus went out of his way for us? Who are the people that God has put in your life that he's calling you to go out of your way for? Who are those people? What are those circumstances? I think this runs against one of the core values of our culture, and I think it varies by generation, but I know my generation uh, at least, and I think the younger generation is very, very committed to authenticity. Authenticity is a huge value. And with every strength, there's a weakness. Authenticity is a beautiful thing, but the dark side of authenticity is it would be weird if I tried too hard, right? That's the dark side of authenticity is if I go out of my way for someone, that wouldn't be the real me. Well, I would argue, yeah, the real you is not very loving, but God wants to transform us. He wants to change us. So whatever parts of our personalities aren't willing to help people or love people or go out of our way for people, God wants to change that in you. So that doesn't mean you're turning into somebody fake when you go out of your way to love others. It means you're authentically being who God made you to be. So so don't use authenticity and the value, the cultural value of authenticity as a reason to not reach out to others. God calls you to reach out to others. And I would say even more, the reason we don't reach out to others is we don't realize at a deep heart level, how Jesus went out of his way for us. The more we realize that, the more we're changed and we can't help reaching out to others. The the last thing that we see as we march through this story is that we see Jesus through his gentleness. So instead of walking, he rides an animal in, but instead of riding uh, a conquering king war horse, he rides a donkey, right? Any of you ever seen a horse up close? Anybody here? Some of you? Okay. Horses are like fantastic animals, right? They have these huge rippling muscles. I think, I'm not, I'm not sure because I don't know a whole lot about animals, but I think God purposefully made their hair really short and shiny so their muscles would show off more, right? Like I think that's just kind of part of God's design. Horses are impressive. Even old beat-up horses have these rippling muscles, right? These veins that are popping out, these huge muscles that, that you know, shake and quiver, and you see them flex when the horse is moving. And, and any general, any commander, any king who wants to conquer or win a battle is going to ride a war horse. And best we know, that's probably what King David would ride as well when he was in battle. But we also see this flip side of there was this history throughout Israel's past where King David and Solomon and others would ride a donkey. And they would do that as a symbol of peace. And so instead of riding the rippling, strong war horse, Jesus came into Jerusalem on one of these. So this is, uh, you're supposed to say, aw, fuzzy little donkeys, right? They're so cute. And just like I think God makes the horse's hair short so their muscles can be seen, I think he makes the donkey with, you know, a little more fur to uh, be cuddly and show off their uh, lack of muscle, I guess. Um, So Jesus rides in, again, very purposefully on something gentle and mild. Now, that's not to say that Jesus isn't a conquering king. In in Revelation 19, we have this vision of the future. 
We have this vision of Jesus coming back to finally wreck all brokenness and wickedness in the world. There is a judging Jesus that is coming. So this is the future that we're going to see in Revelation 19. It says, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse, the one sitting on it called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flame of fire. On his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is coming back on a war horse. He will conquer all evil. All wickedness will be done away with. But the way we are to see Jesus now is through the cross, through the gentleness of him revealing himself as a peaceful king riding into the city in humility, fulfilling the prophecies of Zechariah 9.9, Uh, and then also uh, echoing the images we have of King David and his humility and brokenness coming in and out of the city, especially after the rebellion of Absalom. So we have this picture of a humble king, of a gentle king, who comes to give himself for us. That doesn't mean he's not sovereign. That doesn't mean he doesn't hate evil. It means what he did to take care of evil in the time in which we live now is he, he died for us. He came in the Passover week and revealed himself as the lamb who would be slain. Throughout Revelation, we get these competing visions of Jesus as both lion and lamb. I don't know if you all have ever seen that before, where John's like, I had this vision, I saw this lion, and then he was a lamb who was slain. And there's this tension. And that's this beautiful tension we have in God. God is absolutely holy. He's absolutely righteous. And he's also gracious and gentle. And he meets us in our sin, and he gives himself to us as a savior so it says in verse 5 back in matthew matthew 21 5 say to the daughter of zion behold your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt the foal of a beast of burden so this is how he reveals himself in line with the zechariah prophecy is humble and it says in verse 6 the disciples went and did as jesus directed them they brought the donkey and the colt put on their cloaks and he sat up on top of them Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. So again, uh, like rolling out the red carpet for a king, they put cloaks and palm branches on the ground to make an entrance for him. It says, And the crowds that went before him and then that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. Of Galilee. So they're shouting Hosanna in the highest. That's just uh, the sound of the Hebrew word. Uh, so in the Greek, they take the Greek letters and spell out this Hebrew word. And then the same thing in the English, we just spell out a Hebrew word. The Hebrew word means save us, O God. Save us, we pray. Save us, O God. And it's an echo of Psalm 118. Psalm 118 says this, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So Hosanna is a Hebrew phrase, but when you look up Hosanna, you won't find it in the Old Testament because they translate it for us, right? When we read our Old Testament, we're reading English. So it's Hoshiana in Hebrew, 
uh, and we just get the sound of it here in the Greek, but they're saying, save us, O Lord, save us, O Lord. And they're saying it from Psalm 118, which was a part of these, this section of Psalms that they called Psalms of Ascent, which means going up the hill, right? So Jerusalem was this beautiful mountaintop where it was cooler than the rest of Israel, and it was way up high, and they would go have festivals and worship God and have a mountaintop experience. And the people would sing this certain section of the Psalms, and Psalm 118 was the last one in this section that they would sing as they're marching up with their family and friends to go celebrate and have a festival in Jerusalem. And so in that psalm, that's what they're quoting. They're saying, save us, we pray, O Lord. And it's interesting, there's two sides of it. There's a a prayer, save us, God. We want you to save us. Um, And so it's really a direct prayer to God, uh, a song of praise. There's also uh, this habit that they would say that sort of thing when a king was coming in because the Jewish people would recognize that one of the ways that God would save them was through a king. And again, we need to recognize the contrast here. They're saying, save us. We think Jesus is going to be the conquering king, so save us, conquering king. But Jesus is revealing himself in gentleness, and he's coming into Jerusalem to be sacrificed, to be the lamb who was slain for us, to be the one that takes our place. There's this doctrine we call substitutionary atonement. And what it means is that Jesus is our substitute. It means that Jesus died on the cross to take our place. It means that we deserve to die because of our sin and rebellion, but Jesus died for us. And even though we don't have a righteousness of our own, Jesus gives that to us by faith so that if we trust him, we can be united with him so that when God looks at you, he loves you and he's delighted in you. He's happy with you so that your sin no longer separates you from God. But now God is with you through Jesus. And he's saying, that is a lot of sin, but we'll work on it together. We'll work on it together. And so God reveals himself to us as gentle, as the one who would die for us. And my, my pleading with you is that you would reach out to that God, that you would recognize we, we are sinners. As Romans 3.23 says, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is as righteous or as good as we wish we were. And Jesus meets us there in the gospel and says, I gave myself for you. I offer you life. I offer you a new start. Well, as we conclude the big question, how do we see Jesus? How do we see Jesus? Uh, Galatians says that we most clearly see Jesus in the gospel. In Galatians that we were studying a few months ago, in Galatians, uh, Paul got very frustrated with the Galatians because they started to slide away from just the simplicity of Jesus is enough to save you, and they started looking for other saviors. And we do the same thing as well, right? We look to other things. We look to money to save us. We look for security in our jobs to save us. We look for the right relationships to save us. But when this happens, Paul says, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? And Paul goes on in Galatians 3.1 and he says, it was before your very eyes that Jesus was portrayed as crucified, vividly portrayed. And Paul is saying, not that you saw a flannel graph of Jesus or a cartoon of Jesus, or you were actually there when Jesus died, these were guys that most likely were not in Jerusalem when Jesus died. He's saying, through the preaching of the gospel, you see Jesus. Through the declaration, the, the proclamation that Jesus gave himself for you and died on the cross for your sins, you see Jesus. So that's my invitation to you and for all of us that we wouldn't run off to other saviors, but we would see Jesus. Let me pray for us and then we'll uh, respond in communion. God, we thank you that you love us and you gave yourself for us in Jesus. 
pray that you'd help us to see you for who you really are instead of making up uh, other saviors. God, help us to be brave enough to see you as you present yourself and to respond in faith. Thank you that you love us. Thank you for proving that through the life and death and resurrection of your son who sets us free from sin and death by the power of an indestructible life. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.